Welcome to the Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to our referendum is underway, so join us as we discuss how together we can build a fairer, a more equal and a more prosperous Scotland. Our goal is to ensure that our listeners are informed, that they're encouraged to get involved and will hopefully inspire others to think about the possibilities for Scotland. The past few years have only served to highlight what allowing Westminster to make choices for us is like. So let's make the choices we want for our families and our communities right here in Scotland. I'm your host, Drew Hendry MP. Now let's find out who's joining me on Scotland's Choice today. Hi, my name's Stephen Gethins. I'm Professor of International Relations at the University of St Andrews and author of Nation to Nation, Scotland's Place in the World, a book about Scotland's foreign policy footprint. And I used to be one of Drew's colleagues down at Westminster. <laughs> and uh, much missed you are too, Stephen. It's great to have you on the, the podcast. We want to start off with you know, one of the most simple and basic questions that we could possibly ask. Uh, why is democracy the best form of government and, and the best way to indeed choose who governs us? Good question, isn't it? Sometimes it doesn't seem that way, does it, Drew? <laughs> no. But um, <laughs> as somebody who's won and lost elections, you know you have your, um, you have your, your. It's challenging, but you know if you're an elected politician, life shouldn't be easy, should it? You should be challenged. Mm. You should draw from a range. You should be accountable, as you are. And I know how hard mm. you work, Drew, along with your other colleagues. I think it's the best form of government. Let's take what's going on. I mean, I do foreign policy. Let's look at what's going on in Ukraine just now, Russia's invasion, where you have decisions where fewer and fewer and fewer people are part of the mix, where you're not discussing them openly in productive debate, then that's no good because you're not taking as many views on board. And as we've seen in Russia, and this is quite an extreme example, to be fair, we know that Vladimir Putin wasn't speaking to many people. Mm -hmm. People tell him what he wants to hear, and then he makes catastrophic decisions. Now, if you look at this in other ways, look, look, look at your line of work. You're accountable to your constituents. You're open for them to come and talk to you. Your constituents, I presume, and I know, will make you a better MP because they'll have ideas, they'll have perspectives. What you also do is you hold the government to account and you hope, not always, but you hope that the government will listen to you and take those perspectives on board. So if you, if you think about Otto von Bismarck's sausage-making machine when it comes to laws, that the law at the start of the sausage making process is that much better by the time you get to the end of the sausage making process. It does not always work in practice, but that's why democracy is better. You can challenge your governments, you can change your governments, you can hold them to account, and you can hopefully make governance that a little bit better. And you, you hope that that democratic sausage machine is going to come out with a real banger at the end. Uh, we hope so. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, yeah. I don't. Know, well, I mean, I don't know what your reflections are. I mean, you see, you see the worst of it down at Westminster sometimes, mm, where indeed. if you're not listened to, they don't take mm. things into account. And actually, if you have the kind of government you have in Westminster, mm. whereby it's a winner-takes-all approach, and you don't have to listen to the opposition, then surely that's to the detriment as well. Well, I think there is a detriment to democracy, even within a democratic system, because you're you're talking about what happens here at Westminster. And I speak to people of all political persuasions um, who yeah. are really frustrated by the fact that ministers don't answer questions for a start. You know, they, yeah. they, uh, they avoid that. They, they just turn it back on the questioner, regardless of which party is asking them um, or trying to hold them to account. So, but, but basically, what you've just underlined there is that it's better than the systems, the other forms that we, of governance that we see, 
Um, it's just that we've got a particularly imperfect model uh, here at Westminster uh, just now. And following on from that, we, we've seen, um, we've definitely seen moves here at Westminster towards uh, a more authoritarian uh, approach over the last few years. How do you feel that we can uh, move away from this? Or do you, do you think that Westminster's kind of past that point here? Well, I think, I actually think the first past the post system feeds into that. And mm -hmm. I'll tell you why. I think under a proportional system that you've got in Scottish Parliament, for instance, you know, you have to, you have to listen to other parties. Now, I'm a member of the SNP like you, but let's say you had the same system at Holyrood as you've got at Westminster and the SNP would win, you know, what is it, the, about 108, 109 out of the 129 mm. Mm. Um, seats. Now, you and I might celebrate that as members of the SNP, but would that be better for Scottish democracy? Probably not, because if you think about it, the benefit in having that more proportional system is that the broader population is more represented. It's more difficult for governments to get their legislation through, and therefore they have to listen to other people. Mm. And the kind of legislation that you sometimes see at Westminster would be impossible, because... What, what what you see at Westminster, we definitely saw this through the Brexit process that, that that you know about and you worked hard in, was that you had a government that was in, you know, if you think about 2015, with a majority and about 36% of the vote trying to keep their far right and their extremists on board mm. and didn't have to pay any regard to the other political parties. And, you know, no one political party has a, major, has a, has, has a monopoly on wisdom. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that plays. Now, do even Scottish ministers like it whenever it happens? Of course they don't, because it's hard, but governance is hard. Mm. And I think that what you've seen at Westminster, whereby governance becoming more and more extreme, is, is as a direct consequence of a party in power only having to listen to itself rather than having to listen to all parliamentarians. Because you're all there. Your boss is not the SNP, Drew. Of course, your boss or your constituents that vote for you or don't vote for you because mm -hmm. they're still, you know, yeah. um, and that's and that's why you invest and have a parliamentary democracy to try and give get that broader range of, of voices. But in a first past the post system, government doesn't really need to do that. And that's to the detriment of governance. And of course, SNP MPs, you know, having been one, uh, we are in favour of proportional representation at Westminster, even if it was to the detriment of the amount of seats that we would, yeah. uh, we would win here. Uh, of course, it would, and I always find it funny when people say, well, of course, you won't be in favour of proportional representation. And I remember saying, no, of course I Because <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. when we, you know, if you think back again, 2015, we had 56 out of 59 seats. That was unrepresentative mm -hmm. of Scotland. Mm -hmm. You know, we're still a majority and all that, but mm -hmm. great results, great colleagues we would want to lose have lost any of them. But that was unrepresentative, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think you have to be the bigger party that when it benefits you, you have to still be able to call it out. And it's interesting because it's a first past the post system. Just want to pick up on something you were saying there. When, when you're in opposition, as the Labour Party are at the moment, you can see them making decisions that go against not only, uh, you know, their own values. You've got Sir Keir Starmer um, saying that he doesn't you know, he doesn't want to go back into the single market at the customs union. These are things he was advocating just a few years ago. And the reason he's doing that is because tactically um, he's thinking about seats that they will win in the north of England uh, in order to gain power. And so he's sacrificing what he knows is for the best for people in order to make sure he beats that first past the post system. That's certainly my take on it. You're right. And, and it's this whole thing that the UK has moved away from the European mainstream and not for the benefit. 
So if you look at it now, Brexit is incredibly unpopular. Not only that, not only is it very unpopular, except for a small minority that the Labour Party want to compete with the Conservatives over, which I'm still, I still don't understand. <laughs> um, but we also know that it's incredibly damaging to the economy. This isn't just about some Westminster debate. This is about hitting the, the cost of living, hitting the most vulnerable in society. And and I'm sorry, but I, I, I think it is a grossly irresponsible position to take because, again, you have the two biggest political parties in the UK rushing to the extremes, mm-hmm. whereas actually that, 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 that ground in the middle, which is pro-European, which wants to see people, and I, I say this even at a UK level, you're seeing it, has been all but abandoned by the two biggest political parties, mm-hmm. in part, and I think you're right, Drew, in part because of that electoral system. And moving on from the, uh, you know, the, the policy positions and the, the first past the post thing, that we've got um, new voter ID legislation coming in uh, across the UK that will concern many hundreds of thousands of voters um, that might be disenfranchised at the next UK general election. It, you know, it, it's important that we don't have voter fraud, but let's put this into perspective. You know, you're talking about the number of cases you could count on one hand, I think, uh, yeah. in terms of how this comes up. It, is, is this in any way, I mean, asking a rhetorical question, is this needed uh, to, to aid our democracy here? It's not needed. No. Do you know there's so many challenges in democracy? What, what should be one of our priorities as Democrats? Our priorities as Democrats should be to involve as many people as we possibly can in the decisions mm-hmm. that we take. You know, and sometimes they vote for you and agree with you, and sometimes mm-hmm. they don't, but that's part of it. That's all part of it. And I find the voter suppression stuff around this really worrying. Drew, you're, you're right. There is no, we don't have much of a problem with voter fraud. We do have a problem with people feeling disenfranchised, mm-hmm. with people feeling uninformed. So why don't we tackle the problems that we do have? We do have problems with disinformation. We yep. do have problems with unbalanced political debate. We do have problems with an unrepresentative democracy. These are the problems that you want to tackle. And it's striking that you've got a lesson straight out of the Republican rule book in some parts of the United States where you're seeing this kind of legislation being introduced and then all of a sudden it's being introduced in the UK. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know if there are any links to that. I don't know of any links, but it seems quite quite the coincidence. And I don't think it's in anybody's interests um, to be suppressing voters to make it harder to vote. You want folks to come out and vote. You want people mm-hmm. to come out and have a say. It especially affects younger people, of course, as well, because as they're coming into their their first vote, you know, quite a lot of um, even 18 year olds don't have driving licenses. Um, The the legislation allows people over the age of 60 to use the bus pass, for example, but it it doesn't allow uh, people, uh, young people to use the bus pass they might have um, as a as a form of ID. You know, it seems that that it is uh, not only is it a bit sinister in terms of trying to lock people out, but it's uh, anti-democratic in terms of getting those new people and you know the young voices into democracy isn't it it's, it's disenfranchising yeah. and i think that's something you need to move away from if you think about it look what what, what are the reasons that people like you and i supported amendments mm-hmm. to give 16 and 17 year olds a vote for example in mm-hmm. eu referendum or in elections more generally yes it's to give them a say because 16 year olds need to um they have to bear the consequences of 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 how we vote for longer than maybe well, you the and old I thing, will. It's the old thing: if you're old enough to get married or join the army, then surely you should have the vote. Yeah, you've got yeah. the vote. We're taxing yeah. them. You know exactly, all these yeah. things. But but there's also a lot of evidence that 
if you have introduced votes at 16, which incidentally other European countries are now following Scotland mm -hmm. and going down this route as well, um, you get into the habit of voting. And if you get into the habit of voting, that is a way to enfranchise and empower your society. Mm -hmm. So anything that disempowers your society, you know, the Conservatives might think they've got short-term political gain out of this, but it's actually the long-term pain to society as a whole because if fewer people feel that they are empowered and have a say and are encouraged to vote, then the fewer people feel that they have a stake in your broader society, and that's not good for anybody. Well, you were talking about that, you know, the the when young people are getting into the habit of voting, but indeed there's yeah. actually a bit of excitement about casting your vote as a young person. Um, you know, so yeah. so you can see people, I want to cast my vote. I'm really glad my birthday's fallen on this day so I can get to, uh, to go to vote. And surely that's what we should be doing is encouraging a new generation of voters to come into the... You need to encourage it. I see yeah. it with students. You know, they've got a great say. They've got brilliant ideas. You'll see it when you're out and about. I mean, you know, you must see it. For example, when you're out speaking to school to mm -hmm. to, to school kids, or or you're just chapping doors and get chatting to young people when you're out and about doing your job. That they've got. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But they are excited. They've got new ideas. They've got fresh ideas. And, and I dare say you'll find your way of looking at things being challenged a wee bit or being given a different perspective by people who are younger than you. But, I say younger than you rather than um, young people tell yeah, me what to say. <laughs> Indeed. Well, there's quite a few younger now. So uh, uh, we'll move on from that swiftly. But, the, you know, the, one of the other things about a democratic society is the right for people to say when they don't agree with things. And if you're yes. not elected, one of the ways you might do that is through protest. And, yeah. and it's really important, isn't it, to uh, for people to have that right. Now, under the, um, the Police Crime and Sentencing and Courts Act that's gone through the UK Parliament, if you're travelling from Scotland to Westminster uh, to uh, protest, you now face um, a, a arrest if you're uh, in certain circumstances. That, yeah. that can't be good either, can it? So worrying. And I try to think about even some of the stuff we've seen, and you're right about this legislation that's concerning curbing the right to vote, sorry, the right to protest. Mm -hmm. Look, look at the climate protests. Mm. Now, I'm not saying the climate protests always get it right. I'm not saying that. I'm not. I, I, I make no judgment on that, and it's probably not for me to make a judgment. But the climate emergency is the biggest challenge mm. that any of us face. It is existential yeah. to our species. There yes. can be no bigger <laughs> subject. And yet, sometimes when you hear of the way that climate protesters are treated, the language that's used about mm. those who are protesting. Now, again. I think they do sometimes get it wrong, but again, it's not for me to judge because people need to feel that they express themselves. Yep. But the passion is there, and I'm glad the passion's there because these people are out protesting about the climate, for example, care about their futures, not just their own future, but everybody's future and our common future. So some of the actions that you've seen, and I'm glad on, on, under the work that you've undertaken and people like John Nicholson um, and 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 others, it's good to see these apologies coming from the police. Mm -hmm. But if you make the right to protest more difficult, what happens when people feel that have got no say? Mm -hmm. And if not over the climate emergency, this huge existential issue, and this, then what? This is massive as well, because, you know, without protest, women wouldn't have the vote. Uh, without yep. protest, that we might well still see slavery being sanctioned. You know, these are, you know, big things that have changed in history because of the right of protest. Uh, that yes. people have taken forward. And if you remove that right for people, you not only you know, further disenfranchise them, but it's a very dangerous place to go in terms of uh, you know, where people's rights are in the future. And look, we talked earlier on about 
Labour and the Conservatives about their sort of cosy kind of place that they occupy in terms of that anti-Brexit space, for instance. So let's take that more broadly. What does protest do? And you're right in terms of there was a time when votes for women was on the fringes. Hmm. Um, and it was only protesters, as, as you're right, said, that brought that up to it. There was a time when talking about the climate was on the fringes. Hmm. And that's why one of the reasons, going back to the very beginning of our conversation, one of the reasons is why democracy is a better form of government than any others for all its flaws, is you hear from that widespread group of of, of society. And sometimes they'll say things that, that, that you, I don't mean you, but, but as parliamentarians, you might not want to hear or you're not debating. Mm-hmm. And that's where having that societal um, um, ownership of these of these big issues is so important. Now, when we're making these big points, and you know, I, I make these points in Parliament, and you make them in uh, wider society uh, just now about the fact that democracy is really important. We, yeah. we sometimes, certainly as SNP MPs, we we sometimes get it thrown back that we've not accepted democracy, that we didn't accept the result of the 2014. Uh, referendum. Yeah, what, what's your thoughts on that line when they try and spin that back at uh, back at us? So I'm, I'm going to quote, and you'll, your listeners will find this unusual, David Davis, the former Conservative Brexit Minister, mm-hmm. and Ian Murray, the Labour MP, who I both remember saying in the chamber around EU referendums in the EU, um, a democracy ceases to be a democracy when people aren't allowed to change their mind. And that's the whole point. Indeed. You know, it's not as if there is no time in society. We're allowed to change our minds on votes for women. We're allowed to change our minds about governments. We're allowed to change our minds about taxation and this whole range of other issues. People are allowed to change their mind about things. And that's a really important part of our democracy. And the EU referendum is very, very similar in this regard because it is a way that people were told the only way to protect your place um, in the EU was to vote for the union. Mm-hmm. That wasn't the case. But critically, this isn't just you and I making our minds up about this. It was put into a manifesto. And that's, you know, you're held to account, rightly, by whether or not you've implemented your manifesto commitments. And it was in there in black and white. And that's a really important part of democracy. Democracy ceases to be a democracy when you can no longer change your mind about things. Yeah. And, and of course, you, you were mentioning the fact you're one of the 56 MPs that came down to uh, the Westminster Parliament after the 2014 vote when we saw the Scotland Act go through with every single amendment put forward by uh, all but one uh, MP from Scotland rejected. We didn't declare independence. And, and indeed, I think it's really important to mention the Smith Commission report, which all parties signed up to yes. um, at the time of the referendum and it said specifically nothing in this report prevents Scotland becoming an independent in the country should the people of Scotland so choose. And that's very important uh, qualification, isn't it? Well, just as a final point, it's important. That, so first of all, all the parties have agreed that Scotland should still have the option of independence mm. in the Smith Commission. Secondly, this point of whether or not you accept a referendum, I commuted up and down the years for four and a half years. I worked on committees, I worked on bills, just as you're doing right now. Yeah. If we didn't accept the referendum, you wouldn't be in Westminster yeah, exactly, anymore exactly, having yes. to be part of all of this. <laughs> now, I know, yeah. I know, and you can tell we are not, that's a wee bit frustrating for you. Yeah. I know it is, and I know it's hard work. <laughs> and I know commuting from Inverness to, to London every single week is quite a schlep. Mm-hmm. But because we are being active in the United Kingdom Parliament, 
I'm afraid that that is your acceptance. Exactly. Now, I hope that people have the opportunity to tell us whether or not they've changed their mind. There's only one group of people who can tell us that, but that's part of it. You're living that acceptance, I'm afraid, on a, mm. on, 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 on a daily basis. Now, there won't be a single person listening or watching this who hasn't seen the decision of the Supreme Court over the, the past week or so. Um, it, but, you know, taking that into account and also the wider question, how do we get to an independence referendum for Scotland? What things do you feel will need to be discussed at the SNP special conference? And um, be, yeah. just to, to also tag on to that, do you feel that the UK's current position of uh, what I would call democracy denial is sustainable? Well, it is democracy denial. Mm. I mean, the SNP consistently wins elections on the mandate, on a on, on mandate for having an independence referendum. It's not there because Drew Henry or Nicola Sturgeon or anybody else says it. It's there because that's what most people have voted for and that's what they voted for their parliamentarians to deliver. You are you get elected. You're that's important why I'm here. Because most <laughs> people vote for you than yep. vote for anybody else. And they expect, and you'll know this from mm. listening to your constituents, they expect you to deliver on mm. that. So this isn't about SNP MPs individually. This is about the will of the people, and they've asked for it. And I think one area where the Supreme Court decision was helpful, even if we didn't like it, was it provided some clarity. Yes. I think that was important. You know, I think the First Minister was right to, mm -hmm. to, and it provided clarity. It's not the clarity that those of us who are pro-independence wanted, but like anything in life, you get that clarity, you move forward. But it also provided a wee bit of clarity to the broader um, population about the nature of the union. And what's been really striking is listening to some of the more thoughtful pro-union um, pro voices out there who have said, well, we need to find a, a route for Scotland to gain independence. Mm -hmm. They're not saying we should be independent, but if that is something the Smith Commission, as you pointed out, mm -hmm. I haven't reeled out, it's what people vote for, then what is the mechanism? And I remember I was hearing the Labour Party saying things like, oh, it's up to the SNP to say what the mechanism is. Well, the SNP have said what they want the mechanism to be. And what I think that now we've got the Supreme Court decision, the general election or having an electoral, that, that is the only other tool that you have in your, in your armory. Mm. I do think international recognition is important, but it is the responsibility of, of, of a pro-independence mm. first minister who was elected on that basis, let's not forget, to look at all of the levers that she has at her disposal. And this is the next democratic event um, that we know of, and therefore, she will once again ask people of Scotland mm. to give her a mandate and ratchet up that political pressure to to deliver what people are asking for to be delivered. And um, you know, in terms of you know getting this this message out, in terms of speaking to people, um, there are barely any Scottish-centred political shows on Scottish TV, with a couple of exceptions, notable exceptions. The, the SNP are third largest party at Westminster, but we often kind of get overlooked for things like Politics Live and Question Time. Yeah. Do you feel yeah. the diversity of political broadcast media and information is available, that's available to people is satisfactory in Scotland to allow people to make informed choices? I find it really frustrating. I mean, so on the one hand, you have over-representation or have done throughout the years mm -hmm. of parties like UKIP, even though they never had any. So for, on the one hand, they'd say to the SNP, um, oh, you shouldn't go on certain programmes because of your minimal parliamentary representation. Then, of course, come third party and you get a little bit more coverage. But they had UKIP on all this time. Mm -hmm. It's never even so much as saved a parliamentary deposit in Scotland. Mm -hmm. I actually think it's an area where the Green Party have 
yeah. justifiable complaints in this area. And what what you do is political discussion and debate becomes incredibly Westminster Village centric. Mm-hmm. So you're listening to the same people make the same arguments, be it Conservative or Labour, but actually that's not terribly representative. So I think that that lack of diversity, um, almost that editorial line that you sometimes mm-hmm. been taking at Westminster, is no good for anybody because you have that paucity of discussion and debate that is not reflective of the wider discussion. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes places like Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales become too difficult to understand for Westminster because we're not discussing it and debating it and forcing people to think in a slightly different way. So I'm not sure the debate and discussion that we're having is representative of the debate and discussion mm-hmm. that's taking place. And I'll say in the UK as a whole, mm-hmm. because the UK as a whole is an extraordinarily diverse place. If you look at voting patterns, you know, in Scotland and how different they are from, say, the southwest of England or from Wales or Northern Ireland. I mean, they're so diverse and distinctive, and I'm not sure we're capturing the richness of that debate and discussion. Well, let's see. You mentioned the the other nations of the UK, that Wales and Northern Ireland there. Um, and we, we do have a, a situation where we're often said as, you know, people are proponents of Scottish independence, that if we want to join, rejoin the EU as an independent country, we're just giving up uh, you know, uh, one you know, set controls you know, over us uh, for another from uh, the EU. But it's a very different situation, isn't it, for the uh, between the four nations in the UK and the EU? Where uh, you know, do you do you do you find that argument? You know, is it something so you it, buy it, into? It or just <laughs> annoys me. I know you don't. <laughs> it shows, it shows an ignorance of the UK yeah. as it is, and it shows mm-hmm. an ignorance of the EU as it yeah. is. Mm-hmm. Very briefly, mm-hmm. the EU is a club for independent states. The UK isn't. If you go to Helsinki or Dublin or Copenhagen, you know, I was in Dublin last week, 50th anniversary mm-hmm. of their accession to the EU. Did the Irish think they're any less independent than the day before they joined? But the Irish will tell you that actually they don't think they were truly independent before they were in the EU. And did we There's f- only we've, one group. Did we've had Irish politicians on this podcast saying that in the past? Saying the same thing. Yeah. Very fine mm-hmm. Irish politicians mm-hmm. saying the same thing. And interestingly, I was, you know, when you're, you're chatting to them and they get really frustrated, there's only one group of people who really think that being in the EU is incompatible with, um, with independence and sovereignty. And that's a small group of conservative mm-hmm. sovereigntists mm-hmm. who sit with you at Westminster. Unfortunately, they're in the majority in the parliament that you sit in, but they're utterly in the minority when it comes to Europe or the rest mm. of the world. Yeah. And and let me go into the treaties. The treaties are signed by each of the member states who have vetoes over all these important areas. If there's a disagreement, they have a Supreme Court they, they can go to. And if they want to leave that union, as we know, they can trigger Article 50 at any moment of their choosing. There's no Article 50 in the UK. There's no court in terms of um, decisions. Parliamentary sovereignty reigns over all, as we also know from what's being told, the UK and the EU might both have unions somewhere in their names, but they could not be more different in terms of how they respect their constituent parts. And we're, we're recording this episode on the day where Gordon Brown's uh, tried to come up with some torturous proposals that really do very little to uh, change the union. But that underlines the point you're making about the fact that this isn't a union of equals in terms of uh, the power, because 
you know, we, we, there are things like devolving, you know, the job centres to uh, to the regions yeah. and things like that. You know, that that those are big, uh, meaty things that that say we're in a federalist uh, setup or anything near it, aren't they? There's no freedom in terms of you can't trigger Article Fifty. You, how do you choose? I mean, Labour might decide they want to throw a few powers here and there, mm -hmm. and that's fine. But did have a mandate to do it? Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't look like they're going to win that many seats in Scotland again. So again, you're sort of imposing what you say is a solution mm -hmm. on Scotland against the democratic will. Now, is our solution the right one? Well, we think it is, but are we right? It's only one way to find out. Test that with the people. Test that with people. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, well, let's let's spool forward from that argument there because we're talking about, you know, just mentioning that, that the, um, the new brown vow um, and, you know, the regions and the context there. Um, Scotland does um, get some criticism sometimes. And the Scottish government gets some criticism about being, you know, a bit centralist and so forth. So once Scotland becomes independent in the EU, how do you see uh, power being devolved and shared within the, the new state? So, I think so. What, what what I'd like to see, and I think this is something's open for discussion and debate, is um, actually. I think you want to have a constitutional convention mm. and talk about this. You want to take as many views. I mean, there is precedent for this. When the Lisbon Treaty was signed, what they did was they got together parliaments, Civic Scotland, the different constituent parts. They came together and they took their time. I know a lot of people talk about decision-making in the EU being a bit more cumbersome and longer than, say, in the UK. But in the UK, you know, one government makes a decision, you've all got to go with it. And the governance should be about taking on board as many different views mm. as possible. So I think you should take on board different views on foreign policy, my, my, my own area of work. Um, different parts of Scotland have different relationships. I mean, there should be nothing stopping the, you know, people who live in Lerwick thinking about their relationship with other Nordic states, people in Ayrshire thinking about their relationship with Ireland, people in the borders think about their relationship with England. And there's actually precedence for this. If you look just to our east, of where we both are today, you see a model that, 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 that might work for Scotland and for these islands. You've got Finland in the Euro and in the EU, Sweden and Denmark in the EU, not in the Euro, Norway outside the EU and the mm. Euro. You've got the Holland Islands mm. in the EU as a result of being part of Finland, but voted to join the EU itself. Mm actually did its own deal, so if you need to get your duty-free and you're away from the Holland Islands to elsewhere, you can still get it because the Holland Islands cut their own deal. You've got Greenland, which joined with Denmark and then decided actually we want to leave and it left, even though it's still part of Denmark. You've got the Faroe Islands, which never left. Hmm. So just to our east, our neighbours, our near neighbours to the east, with historic links to Scotland and not, not least places like your own constituency, Drew, give us a lesson in how things might look Give us a lesson in how you can represent different views and have diversity. And I think that's something we shouldn't be scared of and we should aspire to in an independent Scotland. Well, I, I certainly agree. And as a former leader of Highland Council, you know, the, a lot of that is very attractive. Um, we did a lot of engagement, actually, within Europe. But, um, yeah. but it, it does seem that um, one of the benefits of being an independent country as Scotland is that actually it would, it would naturally lead to more powers being devolved into the regions of Scotland anyway because of the, the kind of weight of incoming legislation that would have to come through. And, uh, you know, there would be a, a kind of almost inevitable spillover into 
uh, local government picking up some of the slack there um, with that. But you, you, but obviously, you know, we've been talking about democracy and we've been talking about the uh, the, the importance of people voting uh, during this podcast in order to get to the place where we can make those decisions in Scotland to to, to uh, give the, as many powers as we can to as many people um, in their communities. And of course, the, you've just mentioned those fabulous models that sit around us in the Nordic countries and elsewhere where we see this in action because they've got the ability to do that. Yeah, and, and, and actually I'm a huge fan. It's one of the things I like about international affairs and where we live in Europe. Um, Scotland's not a mini UK, it's not an Ireland, it's a Norway, it's a Scotland. So mm -hmm. we've got, we'll have a unique set of circumstances well, there's a whole lot we can learn from our friends and neighbours round about. And that's why some of the work you're doing, you talked about Highland Council and some of the works that you did, for instance, the Centre for Peripheral Maritime Regions, Committee of the Regions, you know, even at that sub-state level, there's so much you can learn from that engagement and that interaction with our friends and neighbours. Well, the final question, uh, Stephen, is one you've been asked uh, in the past. You, I don't know if you've changed your mind or if you've got a new one for today, but... But I just want to wrap up this episode by asking you, in an independent Scotland, what is the one uh, policy or uh, change that you would see uh, coming forward as a, as a result of us being able to address all the powers that we can? Just get back in the EU, be normal, you know, bring wealth and opportunity back to your people. I mean, you know, politics should be about, to quote Jed Bartlett, that we leave we leave a better world than the one that we inherited. And we leave, with Brexit, we leave fewer opportunities and a poorer society than the one we inherited. And that shouldn't be the aspiration for any politician. Well, you're nothing if not consistent, um, because that is exactly what you said. Uh, no. <laughs> and it was <laughs> quite a long time ago, uh, but uh, it's exactly what you said then. So no, I, I think it's uh, I think it's the, the right thing. And when you look at, you know, again, you know, we, we've now, because we're not in the EU as uh, Scotland at the moment, because we're part of the UK, all the goods that go between us and our biggest market, the 450 million people on our doorstep, have 100% of them uh, with red tape and uh, and charges and bits and pieces added onto them. Whereas, you know, being back in the EU, we could get rid of all of that and uh, and have what we, what we had before in the single market. So I certainly agree with you on that. Uh, Stephen Gettins, thanks very much indeed for joining us on this episode of Scotland's Choice. Thanks, Drew. Good uh, to see you. Good to see you too. Uh, don't forget, if you're listening to this podcast, you can find other episodes of Scotland's Choice on scotlandschoice.scot and, of course, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.